0: Hey, and welcome to Hypnotize Me, the podcast about hypnosis, transformation, and healing. This is Dr. Elizabeth Bonet, and I'm your host. This podcast is not a substitute for mental health treatment, nor should it be. If you need therapy or hypnotherapy, please seek a trained professional. I do hypnosis all over the world, so if you'd like to learn more about me, you can do that at my website, drlizhypnosis.com. That's D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. Now on to our episode. Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. Dr. Liz here. So happy to be here today. And before we jump into today's interview, which is fascinating, by the way, I am part of a podcast exchange where I'm just telling you about a couple other podcasts that I find really good and helpful. So one of them is an apologetically sensitive And the host is Patricia Young. She's an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. And this is a really lovely podcast for the highly sensitive person. So she talks about all kinds of aspects, about being HSP and has interviews with people who are HSP, shares her own experience. And it's just a wonderful podcast to help you navigate the world if you yourself are a highly sensitive person. You can find her podcast at Unapologeticallysensitive.com. And that will be in the show notes as well. So today's interview is with Dr. Jeffrey A. Martin. Now, when I started this interview, as often happens, I think we're going to talk about one thing and we end up talking about something completely different. But I love that about podcasting, actually. I think it's one of the gifts. But I'm going to give you a couple of keys here so that the interview is a little bit more understandable. One is that we jump right into talking about fundamental well-being and the information more about the online program that he offers is more towards the second half or the end of the interview where he actually explains that program. He uses the word transition, quote unquote, quite frequently. And what he means by that is When someone's searching for a fundamental sense of well-being, and they're looking and they're looking and looking, and finally they find it, he calls that their transition. So they transition into a sense of fundamental well-being. And the program he talks about, he did not set out to make some like online program for people. He really didn't. He was a neuroscientist doing research on this topic, and not a whole lot of thought in his mind that you know, someday I'll offer this as an online program. But it has evolved to that. So I find that a really interesting process as well. It's very different than someone who sets out to make a course, I think. He does also reference his book that's now out at the time the podcast is airing. It just came out in March 2019. And I'm going to review the book next week. So Make a little bookmark in your mind to listen next week to if you're interested in the book. Just a little about his background. He has been a prolific author, like authored, co-edited, edited over 25 books. Before becoming a researcher, he has a background in tech and was a notorious hacker, actually. And he's written some tech books. He pioneered digital asset management for most of the Fortune 100. He's been featured at academic conferences worldwide. Like his resume just runs on and on and on. And really his focus right now is using this course and using this research that he gathered with over a thousand participants to help people transform and really gain this sense of fundamental well-being. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Right before we jump in, A quick reminder that you can join my newsletter and get free hypnosis files by texting the word hypnotize to 444-999. That's easy, right? Just text the word hypnotize to 444-999 and their program will respond back to you and get your email address and you'll be all signed up and have immediate access to the hypnosis files. All right, I hope you have a really wonderful week. I really, really do. I think about my listeners all the time, and I have a real sense of love for all of you. Hi, Jeffrey. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be with you.
0: Yes, I'm so happy you're here. I find your background so interesting, and as well as your, your current work, the studies you're doing. So I'm going to jump right in with a question. You study what sounds like transcendental experiences. Yes, like mystical experiences, and you have a phrase for them.
1: It's true. I do study that, but I don't study just the experiences. I study the persistent forms of them. And so there's a difference between just having a peak experience Mm -hmm. where it's a temporary thing for you and having a persistent experience, which is an ongoing thing. A lot of people have studied the peak experiences, but there's actually been very few people, very little research done on the persistent form of it. And so, yeah, well, that's what we do. And we call it uh, privately, I mean, in academic terms, we call it uh, persistent non-symbolic experience. Mm-hmm. And publicly, we call it fundamental well-being.
0: Okay, so i that was one of my first questions, actually, was... How do you define persistent? Is that daily? Is it several times a week? Like, Where does it reach your cutoff?
1: For us, it's really moment to moment. So it's a very high bar. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. We would define uh, the, uh, the examples you provided, really, they would all be temporary experiences for us. Okay. And so, we, you know, you can have a temporary experience of fundamental well-being, if you call it temporary, fundamental well-being, but you might as well call it a peak experience or, you know, by one of the many other terms that have been defined. Um, so for us, really, yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing, moment-to-moment experience.
0: So are these, like, happy people? Is that you're saying? Generally speaking, <laughs> when, yes. What you're saying, like, fundamental well-being, like, this real... Um, <laughs> sense of people I I get accused of this and I say accused because that is sometimes what it is one of my friends is like you're always so positive like you can find the positive in anything and I do feel like I am very happy in general not that I haven't had periods in my life where that wasn't true but in general um, you know I live a very happy life is how I see it so Is that who you're studying, like these people who seem to really carry with them a general sense of happiness, well-being, positivity?
1: That was the idea behind the original project, was to find the happiest people out there and study them Mm -hmm. and then, frankly, see see if we could join them. Uh Um, But it's actually a little different than that. What we've learned over the years is that um, there's a actual, quite a, actually quite a significant difference between someone who would rate themselves happy mm-hmm. and someone who is in this form of sort of a different way of perceiving the world or a different way of experiencing mm-hmm. the world. And in fact, we've had many research subjects tell us prior to their transition that they, were, they consider themselves you know, very happy, even the happiest person that they knew. And then after this transition, they were like, holy cow, I didn't even know what happiness was. And they have difficulty finding language for it because in the traditional sense, you know, who they were was very happy. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, how do I describe a version of happiness that or a form of happiness that is so far beyond that? Um, they also will stop using oftentimes the word happiness and they'll start using the word well-being, which is why we use that word as well. Um, and so, you know, happiness, happiness has picked up a lot of baggage yeah. in the positive psychology world. Uh, there's all sorts of debates around There's hedonic happiness and yes. hedonic being and it's just all these different terms and stuff. Um, and so we, we will actually start off in the research often asking people about both happiness and well-being. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't begin that way, then we never established a baseline for what they would say about each one of them. What we originally did was uh, didn't work as well. And so, we, you know, we started by asking people about happiness. But once they transitioned, they were like, you know, happiness just isn't really a relevant thing for me anymore. It's just the wrong word. And so then we transitioned to using well-being. So, yeah, it's it's this is not... Just being very happy. This is really a whole other thing that involves being more, more peaceful, more contented. The I think the primary thing around it is whether or not someone, when they look down to the deepest level of their psychology, whether they find a sort of a kind of a slightly it could even it doesn't have to be a big, but just a slightly sort of nagging discontentment there. Mm-hmm. Like just a slightly nagging dissatisfaction. Like something is just not quite right. Mm-hmm. That is the vast majority of the human population. Mm-hmm. In this population it's different. When they look down to the very base of their well being, even in the worst situation I mean, you're getting divorced. Mm-hmm. Your boss is telling you you're fired and you're never going to work in that industry again, whatever your worst case scenario is. Um, even in the throes of that, being able to look down past all of it and see that fundamental sense
0: of well being. Like, I am like everything is going to be okay and I feel okay deep down inside.
1: Yeah, everything is okay, mm-hmm. it's not even necessarily about how they feel.
0: Yes. Okay. So it's a deeper sense of just perceiving this, um, very present felt sense of everything is okay.
1: Yeah. And that, when that is your new foundation for life, mm-hmm. because of the way the brain works and how it layers experiences and how it layers and how it sort of builds your reality, one layer on top of another, on top of another with that as the foundation with that change as the foundation, it's just so completely different.
0: I would imagine. Yes. Yes. Um, So my next question on that is, in general, do you find that these people um, develop that sense from more of a spiritual place or not necessarily? Like I, I know some of your, your website said, you know, it's not religious. This isn't religious based because mm-hmm. there's atheists and all kinds of spiritual traditions yeah. and everything. But but would you say that there's a spiritual base to it?
1: Well it depends on how you would define spiritual. So how would you define spiritual?
0: A sense of something outside of myself that's that I have a belief in that's supportive of my well being and growth through the universe off the top of my head. <laughs> but
1: <what are> you- <laughs> I know that's a tough one to define, right? It
0: is, it is.
1: Yes. And we ran into that same exact problem where, you know, people would want to talk about things from a spiritual standpoint, but, but I would always say the same thing to people like, well, how would you define spiritual? Uh-huh. Uh, and then you wind up with a million different sort of, you know, yes. uh-huh. words or definitions of spiritual, right? Um, and so that I think is the tricky part with trying to say something is or isn't spiritual, especially in a case like this, Uh where you really have people who are, who can only be defined as anti-spiritual by that definition, um, who are clearly experiencing it and many of them. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. So I don't, I don't know that we can say it's spiritual and that's a, that's it. We can say it can be spiritual, Uh but we can't say that it has to be spiritual.
0: Oh Yes. Yeah, I totally get that. But I guess I was wondering whether you measured their own sense of spirituality. Like when you're studying these people, and you could say, you know, I don't know, a simple question of like, do you consider yourself spiritual or how spiritual? Did you study that when you were looking at them?
1: Yeah, there are some really good spirituality scales, uh-huh. and uh, they were part of what we administered for sure. Um, And we really didn't find any strong degree of correlation in terms of transition to fundamental well-being based on what people were. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I don't think it hurts. I think it's as fine to have the one worldview as it is to have the other worldview, as far as we can tell from a data standpoint.
0: Yeah, I I do find it really interesting. Because um, I was atheist myself for about 20 years and then found a real sense of what my own definition of spirituality, which has <laughs> has led to all kinds of transformations in my life, and certainly a deeper sense of fundamental well being for myself. So, right so I, you know, it's it's like I, I've been in both worlds, and mm. it, I just find the whole concept fascinating. For me, it went with this sense of spirituality, but it, it, obviously, that doesn't have to for everybody.
1: Yeah, it doesn't personal. and. Yeah. There's different different types of this as well, and so for instance, location three, or you could think of it as the third type, um, we call it locations along a continuum of related experiences, mm-hmm. and so we sort of visualize sort of this continuum of related experiences, okay. and then within that, different sort of spots that people cluster in. Okay. So location three is um, very much sort of the end of the classic Christian mystical path or the Sufi path. And it's it's picked up in Eastern traditions as well. Um, And, you know, it's a place of love uh, where you have a primary emotion that that feels like it's a combination of love and joy and compassion. Um, But interestingly, even though it is without a doubt the, really the classic end of the Christian mystical tradition. And so one would expect union with the divine to be an extremely important part of it, right? Um, Like that is the end of the Christian mystical tradition is union with the divine, right? Whatever sect you have, maybe it's union with Jesus or the Holy spirit or God (laughs) Uh himself, whatever, but that's it. So people can land in location three and they can have a divine or a not divine version of the experience. So some people will land there, and it will feel like that classic you know, merging with the divine, union with the divine type thing. Other people will get there, and it will feel more like a panpsychist sense. So panpsychism is a philosophy term, and it basically means like everything feels conscious is a good way to think about it. Um, and so it will feel like everything is conscious, but it won't have sort of the quote-unquote divine type flavor associated with it. And... Um, People tend to be one or the other. It's very unusual for people to switch between them. And so it's almost like some people are or like sort of predestined or mm-hmm. you know their neurology is just sort of worked out in a way that they get the divine experience and other people the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So what are clusters 2 and
1: 1? So cluster 1 really begins with that that sense of discontentment disappearing. And there's no other way to say it than it just it disappears like it was never there in the first place. It doesn't really have to transform into anything. I mean, you can ask, well, what is there now? Mm-hmm. right? But it's not necessarily a transformation. It's like it just evaporates like it never mattered in the first place. And that's amazing since it's, it has basically driven most action and stuff in someone's life up to that point. Um, and generally, people find that replaced with a sense of well, a sense of peace that they haven't experienced to that degree of depth before. Um, you know, we, most people have in their minds this endless stream, which often isn't very nice to them of thoughts. You know, um, one of my friends would say, you know, if somebody says, "Oh, I don't really have that," they would say, "Well, you know, that voice in your head." How on a scale of one to 10, how much would you like that to be transplanted into another person? And then you'd be trapped in an elevator with them for five hours. Yeah, <laughs> right? Right. yeah. Like, Oh, that voice. Yes. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the, you know, you have this reduction in those types of thoughts where it's a situation where you just don't, um, they just don't occur as much as they used to okay. before. Or if they do, uh, if they still seem to have the same frequency, they are much less impactful. They don't have the emotional saliency to draw you in mm-hmm. that they once did. Mm-hmm. Um, negative emotions roll off much more rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it's not that if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you might mm-hmm. you know you might still flip them off, mm-hmm. but um, you're not going to be following them two blocks later, still bumper to bumper, angry at them or whatever else. Right? Things come and they go, mm-hmm. and then in location two. These are just very high-level views, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then in Location 2, um, there's a shift that occurs for people um, into something that has classically been called non-duality or non-dual perception or something like that. Now, in reality, there are many forms of non-dual perception that our research has picked up on. And so it's not that helpful that traditionally they've sort of been lumped into this one idea. Okay. But, the, but the basic gist of that idea is that there's a fundamental change literally in how reality is perceived. And so um, the average person, when they look out at a room, for instance, or when they look out at whatever they're looking out at, even another person, whatever it is, um, there's a feeling that there's something like in their head that is looking out. There's a sense of a looker. You know, there's something is looking mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same with hearing. There's a sense that something is in there hearing this other stuff. There's, there's the hearer, right. and then there's the other stuff out there that's being heard, right? There's the seer, and then there's the other stuff out there yes. that's being seen. And this is very different than that. And so um, this really transitions to such that if you were to talk about the visual perception change, when someone is seeing, literally it's just like everything is just showing up, including them. And there's absolutely no perception of a looker or anything looking out. It's just like there's just this visual field and it's all there all at one time. and generally speaking, they're a part of it. There are some sub differences in this like it can just show up out there mm-hmm. and it can still feel like you're a little separate from it. So there you know there are different ways that this shows up. but the but the most significant way is it all every you open your eyes, everything is just showing up, including, including, you know, your body and whatever else is, is in the field of perception, visual perception. And then in audio perception, it's the same thing. It's just like there's just this field of sound. There's nothing listening to it. Mm-hmm. There's just the sound. Um, and I heard that described to me for many years by research subjects before I experienced it. Uh, and it was a very frustrating thing to have explained to you again and again and again and again because it made me really curious. You know, like you know, I clearly have the listener, right? <laughs> clearly how you're describing yeah that I don't have, you know, I didn't have that for a long time. Um, I didn't have that change for quite a while. And so, um,
0: so is it a change into, um, just being like fully present so that <coughs> third person sense goes away? Is what you're saying. Like that's that duality is what you're calling it, right? That sense of being separate goes away.
1: It certainly can feel that way, but there's One of the things that's fascinating is that there's different degrees of separation. Ah, okay. So, for example, um, one of the stories I tell that's a personal story is I was in a meditation hall one time doing some research, and uh, I'd been meditating along with them just for the heck of it, and um, they were on a break, and I was waiting for someone to discuss some things with, like one of the teachers, Um, and someone behind me, I was in like a little kitchenette area, and someone behind me... Dropped a plate onto the floor, and it shattered. Um, And there was absolutely no distinction between that plate and how I would identify myself, my identity, basically, with that plate, and my identity with my own voice. It was the same thing. There was just it, right? Just me, if you will. And that is a very particular place and location, too a very certain spot in that location um, that some people reach, but many people never experience. Okay. Um, that might be the height of one form of sort of non-dual perception, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it's not the the it's not the, what I would really consider the day-to-day, the more ordinary form of non-dual perception. Now, that would be if you hear the plate fall, it's not outside of you. It's still clearly you. It's all still clearly one thing, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't have that intensity of identity. That the other location has and so just these two examples and we can have many many other examples of sort of different ways that non-duality shows up uh, what they highlight for me from a neuroscience standpoint is just different ways that the brain can rewire in its processing mm-hmm. what people have thought over as far as i can tell for millennia is one of those ways of rewiring being quote unquote the right way and one of those ways of rewiring being quote unquote the wrong way okay. where you know, when you view it from a neuroscience standpoint, it's like, oh no, that one was just plugged a little more into there that time. You know, it was going down this connection instead of this other connection. But if you went down the other connection, it'd be, then it'd all still be fine. And it doesn't affect that deep sense of well-being. It doesn't affect, it doesn't bring back a sense of discontentment. It's all just sort of a flavoring on top of that. And so when we talk about these different locations, location two is really just an increasing depth, an increase in depth of location one for some things like you have even fewer self-referential thoughts or they're able to grab you even you know you know far far less than they were before you have emotion um that is increasingly trending towards positive because you know more and more and more those negative emotions have fallen off to the point where now they you know as you deepen into location two Oftentimes, they just don't even arise anymore. You just have a positive emotional state, you know, most of the time. Um, and so, there are these, there are these things that are gradient changes across the continuum, like that, uh, where by location three, there's even fewer thoughts, and by location four, there's basically no self-referential thoughts. And then there's really strong punctuated things, like the shift into non-duality, that just very clearly isn't there at location one but is there at location two and it actually goes away at location three mm-hmm. because if you think about it you can't have you can't be in union with something or you can't be increasingly merging with something that is outside of you or that is part of you right it has to be outside of you yes. and so you can't be in a non-dual sort of state and have this sense of union mm-hmm. with some divine that's out there um, and so that's a switch back to to duality and this is not you know, just our idea, actually, I was uh, watching John Hagelin, who is the leader of the Transcendental Meditation Movement in America, and who has, um, who speaks a lot about, you know, they have sort of a Hindu side, Mm -hmm. Uh, they sort of come out of Hinduism, and so he goes back to the Vedas for a lot of his stuff, Mm -hmm. Uh, he had a slide that was drawn from the Vedas, and it had these four levels, and they went, you know, dual, non-dual, dual, dual, -dual. non-dual, so it was was interesting, however many Oh, those things were written, you know, that was picked up on. Yeah. So then in location four, um, there are other very strong, so there's, it's a, it's kind of a punctuated change, really the emotion thing in location three, uh, the sense of the divine can come in where it hasn't existed before. That can be another punctuated change into location three. And then in location four, the divine goes, any sense of panpsychism goes, uh, you occasionally have a Christian mystic who sort of falls off the end of their map and into location four. And it's a pretty freaky thing to have happen to them, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they spent their entire life believing that it's all about merging increasingly with the divine. And all of a sudden, there's no divine. Mm-hmm. So a great series of books on that is um, the No Self series of books from Bernadette Roberts, who passed away not long ago mm-hmm. and until re- very recently within the last year or so, was one of the greatest, you know, was probably the greatest Catholic contemplative alive. Mm -hmm. Um, And she had that problem. She basically went, she maxed out location three, and then she fell off of it, right, you know, into location four. Her progress basically continued, but her religion did not have a map for it. Mm -hmm. She really, really understood, you know, the mystical texts in her religion. She'd been a Carmelite nun for a while, the whole bit. So she she started writing her books, basically, to extend the Christian mystical tradition, um, which is a, a you know, very powerful thought, I think. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in Location 4, there's no sense of agency. Agency goes away. Uh, it just feels like everything is unfolding, like everything is synchronistic. There's no emotion. Even love is gone. Mm-hmm. So even parental love, incidentally, is gone. So the love that you feel for your child, it's not there anymore. Um, it's, it's a huge
0: because I'm having a hard time imagining that. Like, I'm a parent, <laughs> so I'm having a hard time. Like, I want a little more explanation there about what happens to the love for your child.
1: That's the fascinating thing. It's just like it's gone. Um, and that disturbs some people well, for so sure. Go back in to in
0: the the sense of,
1: start to tiptoe into that.
0: Uh huh. it got gone in the sense of let's see, I'm just pausing here if I can wrap my brain around this. Okay. So is it in that location? Is it more, um, you're saying there's no merging. Like it's sort of off the deep end of that. It's, it's more a sense of, not a sense of merging and, um, but more of a sense of being.
1: Yes, for sure.
0: Okay. So then. And it
1: comes back to a non-dual sense.
0: The non-dual sense. Right, so if you have a non-dual sense, then um, your children become just, just part of that being. Is that what is that what you mean? Why? Oh,
1: sure, yeah, like absolutely. How they,
0: you lose that sense of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, but okay. they can see they they will appear like that in location two as well, um, right. and location two you can still definitely you still definitely have love for your kids. Uh, so this is a whole other sort of change that occurs. Okay. And the 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 label that's most associated with location four, in terms of one's experience of the world, is freedom. Mm. And so there's a sense of freedom that enters there that does not exist in any previous location. Uh, and that freedom largely stems, it seems, at least on, from what we've seen so far, or it co-varies with this, at least, with a just a an almost total, if not total. Disappearance of a need for approval from others. Oh, so it's almost like there's a big chunk of that you would be a that huge falls freedom.
0: away. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Right. And that, as you might imagine, can bring good and bad things associated with it, right? Because yeah. um, a lot of that keeps us in check socially and keeps our behaviors in check and stuff like that. And so you have to rely more on other structures that you've sort of got programmed into your psyche and all of that mm-hmm. um, to sort of pick up some of the slack there
0: what happens to, let's say, like an internal sense of integrity? Does that disappear in that as well? Or is that still a guiding force? Because sometimes integrity is formed by, um, you know, that that sense of what's right and wrong in terms of what people think, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, integrity, morals, uh all of that, they very rarely change initially. If someone has a very powerful transition initially, Mm -hmm. um, then they can Produce changes in that for sure, but most people have a relatively subtle transition I know that sounds hard to believe based on how these things are being described um, oh, no, But no, it's no, actually it. the case yeah. and so um, Things like morals and values and whatnot often remain largely unchanged mm-hmm. and then they will change over time What happens is that the you know the we're really just the brain is really just a learning machine And we're just collections of what it's what it thinks it's learned Right. And it's like our brain that has its own perspective that it's built up. It's sort of like the self-learning machine. And it, and it has built up what it thinks it learns. And some things are very automatic, like learning to drive a car. We don't think a lot about how much we're pushing on the gas pedal anymore. We did when we were first learning it. Right. But now it's become pretty automatic. Um, other things are like, oh, my gosh, I better push on a gas pedal a little bit more or a little bit less. Right. We haven't they haven't really been habituated yet. Um, and so if you think of the brain that way, one of the interesting things about this is that the self, what, what people normally consider their self, it's, it's more or less just a bunch of habits and in, in a way it's kind of a meta habit. And so to some degree, what we're talking about here is sort of breaking that habit mm-hmm. and replacing it with another habit. Um, and it really does sort of need to be cultured and looked after and curated and all of that in the same way that the that the initial sense of self that what most people would consider who they are mm-hmm. is yes. um, after the transition to fundamental well-being it's not a guarantee that you're going to stay there I mean, there's a lot of belief around this in sort of the spiritual marketplace um, that you know once you transition that's it you're done but you know when you have a project that's a global a giant global project <laughs> around fundamental well-being, a lot of people contact you that were in fundamental well-being that are no longer in fundamental well-being. And no. it doesn't take you long to realize, okay, this, is, this doesn't have... To, the reason we use the word persistent and not... Or the reason we use the word permanent, sorry, persistent and not permanent, uh-huh. is because it doesn't seem to be permanent. It just seems to be persistent for however long it's persistent.
0: Well, one I want to clarify, is this a self-guided program that people... Download and go through or is there a teacher? Mentor type of component to it.
1: You mean in our research. Yes Um, Yeah, so for well, there's all of that out there in the in the world, of course Um, For our research we have um, We basically have a program that began as an experiment and was an experiment up until as I'm making this video really just a few months ago Mm -hmm. and we were trying to decide do we kill it or do we keep it going and we decided to keep it going because it's as far as I know the most successful thing out there in terms of transitioning people so it has a success rate during the experimental phase anyway mm-hmm. um, it had an ex- it has a success rate of like seventy percent of people transitioning right so right. I mean I don't know if you've ever gone to any spiritual retreats or mm-hmm. anything like that but I, I mean if you're realistically if you're a really good teacher and you have a retreat and you have like you know One person wake up out of a hundred. You're a really happy teacher. Yes. (laughs) Most teachers are going through a really phenomenal. It really is. Yeah, it's unheard of. Right? I didn't believe it for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took me those four people that were the initial folks that transitioned. I mean, they really got beat up in interviews and psych batteries and (laughs) (laughs) you know everything else because I just didn't believe it. Um, yeah, I had the data collection set to be for, to last for years. I thought, well, if we take people in and maybe one or two wake up over years, at least we'll have some before and after data. Uh-huh. But instead it turned out that, you know, sometimes they woke up in the first week and almost in, in any group of a hundred people yes. that go through this protocol, at least one to three are going to wake up in the first week. I mean, how crazy is that? Right. And how long is the program? Like how many weeks? It's uh, 17 weeks right now.
0: 17. Okay. When they go through the protocol. And now it's it's not an experiment. It's it's like, all right, an offering, let's call it.
1: I, I We're know. still collecting data. I mean, technically oh, it still, is still. Okay. But we don't need it, frankly. You know, I mean, well, I it's mean, not going to make the statistics be, any more significant than yeah, they already are. It would just or, be you know.
0: interesting to me. Like, I love data. So I'd be like, yeah, yeah I, mean, I just t- collect data for the next 30 years. <laughs> <You> know,
1: like, <laughs> why not? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly.
0: But you're saying like, okay, the people
1: we used to torture people though, like we used to. Uh, you know, people would really hate us when I started the course because we would make them do, in some cases, like. I mean, at its peak, it was somewhere between eight and ten hours of data collection. Yeah. You know, yeah. pre yeah. and people were just like, "I never want to see another survey or another, <laughs> whatever, for as long as I live." They're like, "Really, You seriously, are making us?" And we're like, "It's honest to God, an experiment." Yeah. Like, that's what you do. You collect, and good news, you're going to have the same number of hours when you're done. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. As you might imagine, that was pretty hard to get them to do it at the end. We had yeah. To, yeah. They had true. to make that pretty enticing. Right. So now, you know, there's probably an hour or two of measures at the beginning and end. Okay. Um,
0: but is this something they go through in person, or they can do this self guided now?
1: No, they can't do it self guided. Uh, it relies on groups. On groups. And so right. you can do it from anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. but. Um, You can't do it. You really can't do it alone.
0: Okay. Um, Okay. So that that goes back to my original question, Yeah. which I didn't really get to, but it was like, all right, if you have this guided program that you're Mm -hmm. doing in a group and then you're saying it takes some maintenance along the way is what you're finding. So it's persistent but not necessarily permanent.
1: Yeah, not necessarily along the way during the course, but after you transition, whenever that is.
0: After, like you, you don't. It's not permanent. Like, oh, you can just stop doing everything, right? And you're just going to keep that sense. It's like there's some practices that you can choose to continue doing to maintain. It's not
1: really even so much practices. It's, I mean, you, you. It's probably a good idea to keep doing the practices that are working for you for sure. Uh Um, But it's also just changes in lifestyle. Right? Okay. And so, you know, there are a lot of changes that occur in someone's life as a result of this. Like, for instance, pretty quickly, you realize, you just have the realization one day, while you're sitting there talking with your friends, mm-hmm. that you could not possibly be less interested in what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because, you know, you, although you've never noticed it before, it turns out that you've been living your entire life. In this community of these other, sen- of these, you know, normal quote unquote senses of self, and their primary activity is to tell and validate each other's stories. Mm-hmm. And you just have no interest in telling life stories about yourself and getting them validated and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever else, right? And so it's pretty common for people to struggle with that on the other side of fundamental well-being and and how do i deal with that you know do i do i just go and listen and be nice and keep humoring them uh but eventually they don't you know eventually either they get their friends on board or they're usually they make new friends Mm uh that don't have that sort of same habit pattern and stuff like that and so there's just sort of i think you know there's who knows what the impact would be of continuing to just try to deeply engage in personal stories and the validation of personal stories with your friends. Mm-hmm. But I suspect it would not have that great an outcome in terms of maintaining your fundamental well-being. <laughs> okay. um, and I don't think we're necessarily going to know because right? people don't do it. <laughs> it depends yeah. on the friends. Exactly. That's what
0: you're saying actually is it does depend on the friends of, um, you know, what do you yeah, choose to talk about or how to connect or how do you connect? And are you engaging in habits that aren't, aren't, um, don't contribute to each other's growth. It's-
1: yeah, and they won't understand it, right? Because they didn't go through the change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this is totally normal how they're interacting. They're like, you're the weirdo now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're the one that's like, well, why are you trying? You know, we've been friends for 25 years. Why are you trying to change this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is what we do when we get together. We've always had breakfast on Tuesdays. And we, it's always been the same conversation. Like, mm-hmm. what do you mean you want to change it? So it's often not really met favorably. Uh And that's a trend, actually. It goes across spouses and kids and all sorts of stuff. You know, your first inclination is like, holy cow, this is possible. I need to tell everybody I care about. Uh But that's actually one of the last things that you should do because people just view you as kind of strange.
0: Yes, right.
1: And so what will happen usually is they'll go and they'll tell their spouse or, you know, someone close to them, and that person will be like a little disturbed, Frankly, you know, they're like a little bit worried about this person's mental state now that is their spouse or whatever. Right. Um, And, you know, the person talking will pick up on it and then they'll just shut up. And that'll be the end of that conversation. And typically what they'll do is they'll find one to three other people who are like them Mm -hmm. that they can bounce stuff off of to make sure that they're not crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And those those other people won't necessarily become their best friends. They'll they'll maintain other friendships. Uh, It's really an interesting social dynamic, the whole thing.
0: Yeah, it does sound like that. It sounds very interesting. And what was um, occurring to me as you talked was actually a couples training that I'm in around uh, development and differentiation and how that changes through a lifespan and and the lifespan of a couple that's together, let's say. Mm. And a big piece of happiness they're finding through the couple's side of research is this ability to differentiate, meaning I don't have to feel what my spouse feels or I don't have to think what my spouse thinks. Like we have our own paths and we can choose to Mm -hmm. um, blend and cross over those paths at certain Mm -hmm. points, but they don't have to be the same path. So, that's what was occurring to me when you are talking about that is this this issue of differentiation seems to come up for people. Really like, okay, I'm having this experience and now I'm realizing I, I don't want to be the same as my friend, let's say, that we go and, and have breakfast every Tuesday morning and talk about the same thing
1: mm-hmm. and
0: becoming okay with that or, or saying, no, I need some changes to happen here. And you're mm-hmm. saying for the population you've studied they make the changes. They're like, okay, I'm no longer interested in doing that. So I'm going yeah. to find the one to three friends or however many that is. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. It becomes kind of unbearable. You know, it's often the, the surprising thing for us early on was, um, people that would describe themselves as news junkies mm-hmm. and they would say, you know, I'm not a news junkie anymore. And it took me a while to realize that really the news is just another form of storytelling. You know, people would drop off from, you know, they wouldn't necessarily watch movies as much. They wouldn't watch TV shows as much. They wouldn't read books as much. They would drop away the other elements of story Mm -hmm. that are designed to sort of connect at a story, emotional, perturb your emotions level Mm -hmm. um, with the normal sense of self, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, But like the news, you know, it didn't occur to me uh, initially, but I'm like, oh, of course, the news is just another form of stories.
0: Yeah, totally. I I can't stand watching the news. I haven't watched it in <laughs> I'm serious. I don't. I haven't been through this program. I don't know where I fall. I'm probably somewhere near the beginning, but um, um. So I could see how that shift would happen. Like, yeah, this isn't entertaining at all. This isn't engaging at all when it's it's really the same type of story over and over. In the mm-hmm. News. Um, mm-hmm. I do have a question about teens have you studied teens with this when you said like the sense of not caring what other people think (laughs) i have two teenage girls in the house and and it's like oh my you know i wish i could say i do say to them like who cares what they it has no impact on them like what do you mean they're they're so self-conscious so have you studied teens in this at all or, or is it really older people
1: That's a very good question. And the answer is our, our research approval did not go below 18. Uh And so it's basically 18 to the mid nineties.
0: Well, what about early adulthood then? Like 18 to 22 or 25, let's say, have you had some come through in that age range?
1: Absolutely. And obviously we've had people talk about their experience as young children and teens Uh uh, as well. And so we can sort of in a hearsay within the person's mind kind of way project back a little bit on that as well. As you know, I'm sure the it's pretty common knowledge these days. I think the brain doesn't stop developing quote unquote until 25 or so. Of course it never stops changing. Right. Yeah. Um, and I always found it fascinating that the, the insurance, you know, when you ha- when you when your car insurance rates dropped for the last time at 25, uh-huh. which was an amazing hack from the insurance actuaries. You know, somehow they figured out like that last major sort of set of changes yeah. in the brain was done at twenty-five, and yeah. now you were a certain type of bet. Right? How incredible <laughs> was that mathematics. <laughs> I mean that was like that they way. had no clue why it was twenty five, right? <laughs> no it was. clue why yeah. it was yeah, right, right. but they nailed it. They just totally nailed it. They did. So, you know, these it's it's you know, it's interesting because actually if we go back to younger kids. There's this set of rules in most traditions that you don't transition kids to fundamental well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would obviously learn about those rules as I went to study the different communities. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really have an appreciation of why. Mm-hmm. And I didn't um I would say that I really didn't have an appreciation of why those numbers clustered in certain ways. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, I mean, there's some forms of very hardcore yoga where they're like, you've got to be 30, 35 before you show up. Yeah. I true. mean, what a crazy number, right? 35. Yeah. Yeah. Where does that come from? Um, and so some it's like, you know, shouldn't teach them something before age 14 or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. And so this is clearly one of those things that's been thought about carefully over yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I met some research subjects whose parents had violated those rules in their traditions, mm-hmm. and it was really clear that they should not have violated those rules <laughs> their tradition. Mm-hmm. Like these kids had the craziest psychological stuff happening for them mm-hmm. um, in grade school and high school and, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is this is an area that really needs a, a research champion. Um, because I ultimately can't recommend something like the Finder's course that is, you know, hardcore and effective, yeah. to someone that's less than eighteen.
0: So it's more—it's more like let them be kids, like they've got to go through their childhoods.
1: Yeah, there's so there's you know there's so much development that happens, and it's all Absolutely. very carefully mapped out these days and all of that.
0: So we're coming to the end of our time here. It's gone very quickly on my side and, <laughs> and mine. So can you please tell people how to find you and if they want to do the finders program? How do they do that?
1: Sure, there's a new book out uh, called the finders that will be out on the 31st if it's not out um, It's basic. Let's say, for anyone who comes later. That's March 31st 2019 Um, but you can get, uh, you can pre-order it and anybody who pre-orders it, we're giving them an online audiobook version and a PDF of it and all that until it comes out. There's still a few days. I don't know if this will be released before or after that, but you can find that at the findersbook.com. Finders course is finderscourse.com. Um, if somebody thinks they're a finder, we have some very important resources up for them and a little course, um, on explorerscourse.com. We try to basically have everything that we think is most important for them to know. Uh, in one spot in a couple of hours of videos that really helps them to orient towards why life is a certain way and how they can optimally think about it. Because once you're past the threshold, it's all about optimal integration. Mm -hmm. And there really hasn't been anybody else that I know who's really studied that. Mm. So Um, the
0: Explorers, is that like um, a little mini course to say, okay, do I want to do a full 17 weeks to a, a decision type of course?
1: It's a yeah, yeah. It's very different. So um, the Finders course is designed to transition people. Mm-hmm. Although we've had people, quite a few people actually at this point, take it who were already in in fundamental well being and who it deepened, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't really talk about that much or put that out there much because it, you know I sort of want the seats to go to people who can transition, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. If you're already in fundamental well being, life is pretty awesome for you. Yes. Um, So we say people go from seekers to finders and from finders to explorers. And so then the next, because really I thought when we first transitioned people that they would just go find a bunch of spiritual teachers or something. And many of whom I knew, right? I mean, I have thousands of research subjects at this point. Um, But that didn't really work out very well. And it didn't work out very well because spiritual teachers tend to have a very limited view of what fundamental well-being is and it's usually the one that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. and so if you know you go to a spiritual teacher and they're in location two and you're in location four there's a huge disconnect there Um, and they more often than not will try to convince you that something has gone horribly wrong in your quest for fundamental (laughs) well-being when in fact you're just in a different location than they are Uh, and so over time i really resisted putting together a second program because it's so time consuming when you get to a hundred or two hundred people that have transitioned and they've transitioned. It's basically your fault that they've transitioned, right? I mean, you create yeah. the program to transition right. them. And so I created a second program that was really designed to help with integration because nobody had the level of integration data that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've tracked people for – I mean, it was just it's just so much data, right? We could see the patterns in it that – Nobody even remotely guessed existed and all kinds of stuff like that and so we created I created an explorer's course And I let a hundred of our alumni into it to test it out to make sure it didn't do anything bad to them And then I tested several more versions of it to refine it Um, the first module of that was really sort of this orientation to what your life is like with like now and why it's like that Mm -hmm. and Everybody that took that was like you have to give this away like this is Mm -hmm. If I would have found this info, I mean, this is like you have to give this away, and so yeah, the little mini course. Um, as they were making this recording, there's no even, there's not even a way to buy the real course. Okay. Um, so at explorerscourse.com, there's basically just this mini course. Um, it has that two hours from that initial session zero module um, that really helps people to orient to it, and then there's more information at nonsymbolic.org, which is our research center's website.
0: Okay, so let me clarify. They can go to the Explorers course and get an idea of the changes that perhaps may happen.
1: Oh yes, okay. really. Well, it's the Explorers course is mostly for people who are already in it. You know, if if you're listening to me talk and you're like, that sounds a lot like me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> wait, no agency, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, no yeah. emotion. Yeah. I'm not crazy. Uh-huh. Then you should go check out Explorers course and see if it fits. You know, see if that information there is helpful and fits. Because okay. if you're in If you're in non-symbolic experience, if you're in fundamental well-being, it will absolutely fit. Um, Before
0: that, they could also – let's say they're not that – they're not there. They could go through the finder's course.
1: Yeah, the finder's course is designed to help them transition.
0: Okay, and that they can do online? Like it's a part of an online course?
1: Yeah, you can do it online from anywhere in the world. There's intakes periodically Uh because you have to be assigned to a small group. Okay, i got it. So right now we're running them, I think, every other month. I think we're thinking of stretching that out a little bit more to give ourselves a little breathing room to maybe Mm -hmm. quarterly. So who knows what it'll be when someone watches the video and it comes in. But um, yeah, so that's the thing. And and then the book itself, the finder's book, is really designed to just sort of give you a comprehensive overview of what that change really is and the different locations, the different types of it. Okay. Uh, how life unfolds, you know, in that space. It's actually written for finders, um, mm-hmm. because I wanted to the, our first major public publication to be for the research subjects who have so generously donated, you know, their time mm-hmm. to the project for all these years. So I really wanted to return something to them.
0: So is it really like a supplement to the finders course, or is it something? It, well, it something is you can when read, you're going through Get an idea of. Um, doing some of these things on their own.
1: Yeah, it's not designed to get you there. It's okay. only to describe it.
0: Okay. So to give a quick idea of what you're doing in the course, you're saying it's a small group experience. And mm-hmm. is it discussion combined with meditation or self-hypnosis? Like what are some of the technologies you're using?
1: That's a good question. So the course is... Um, the, the only reason the course exists is because in all of our other research we didn't find anything that we could use to reliably transition people. And if you have to spend you know three to five thousand dollars per subject on neuroscience, mm-hmm. and you're not sure if somebody's going to transition, you're wasting a lot of three to five thousand dollars, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and so we just couldn't do a lot of the experiments that we wanted to do without a reliable protocol. And I was amazed that there wasn't one out there. I mean, this stuff's been worked on for thousands of years, right? How is it possible that that's the case? But it is the case. We wound up doing this in a a very unexpected way. I thought for sure that it would be some sort of technological intervention. And we're actually at the stage of a technological intervention right now. Um, Um, But it's not public. And it won't be public probably for quite a long time Um, um, because of costs that are involved and Regulatory approvals and all kinds of stuff, right? You're directly, you know, you're putting energy directly into the brain, and there's a lot of complexity there. Uh, uh, so, what the Finders course was, was us giving up to some degree on technology, on a technological intervention several years ago, and saying, what else do we have? And it turns out, and I mean, this is going to sound funny in hindsight, it turns out that every person had you know, that was a research subject had filled in a blank answering the question, what worked for you? Mm -hmm. And then I had ignored that question because I did not think that our research subjects could accurately report that information. And that may seem surprising. We could talk for hours about why that is. (laughs) We can just skip by it right now. Uh, But what we learned from that box was that from that little text box was that many people had tried relatively the same thing and that some people had had one thing that they think worked and other people had another thing that they thought worked and so on and so forth but when you sorted these down there actually weren't that many of them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it sort of looked like what people were doing randomly out there in the world that had successfully transitioned to fundamental well-being was that they were trying a bunch of different methods Some people got lucky, you know, like they took a TM course and TM did it for them right away. That's great. Um, But that's definitely not normal. So some people found an alignment right away. But other people had to like try thing after thing after thing after thing after thing to try to find an alignment, a method that worked for them. And so the reason the course was originally called the finders course um, was because it was designed to help you find the method that works for you right now. We think that when you find the method that works for you, you can wake up right away. And so that's why I say in a group of hundred people yeah. taking the using the protocol, you know two, one, two, three of them, however many are going to wake up in the very first week because they're just going to be a match to that one. Uh-huh. And it's just going to be the way it worked out for them. Um, other people are going to be two, week two, week three, week four, week five, all the way to week 17, you know? So and so passes. that's basically what it does. So every Saturday, a new instruction comes out uh-huh. and it tells you what to do, you know, what practices you're going to do for that week. And you have to kind of put all the stuff you learned before on a shelf and just do those practices for that week. And then next week, you're doing another one. Next week, you're doing another one. Next week, you're doing another one. So you're sort of rotating through the greatest hits, if you will, from the research until something works.
0: Amazing. I think that's so much fun. Yeah. right.
1: It's so simple.
0: Cool. Very There's no
1: magic to it. It's just iteration, science and iteration, you know?
0: Wow. Fantastic. That sounds Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your research and your experience with us tonight or today. It's today over there and it's tonight over here. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs>
0: In our like circular time here. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you. I appreciate you as well. This um, was really great. This was a lot of fun.